This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and podcast. Two fathers still grieve the loss of daughters from Israeli army bullets and Palestinian bombs. Can they help end the violence in the Holy Land? That's coming up. The ACT government will legislate to forcibly acquire the Catholic-run Calvary Hospital in Canberra. The decision raises questions about the independence of faith-based organisations. Can they operate according to their values? Catholic hospitals already provide about 10% of Australia's total hospital services. Professor Joanna Howe of Adelaide University Law School is an expert on employment and conscientious objection, and she's been following the case. Andrew, there's a range of problems to this decision. The first, I think, being is that it subverts ordinary parliamentary processes and is a rushed decision. They're bypassing the ordinary process of a committee hearing, and there's been no stakeholder engagement or community consultation on the decision. And it's a very serious decision that fundamentally overrides institutional conscientious objection, which is a really core part of our democratic tradition. Isn't the hospital, though, already integrated into the Canberra health system? Aren't many Catholic hospitals already integrated into state health systems? They are, and Calvary is. It's a public hospital that operates within the ACT Health Services Network. I think what we really see here, though, is that Calvary as a Catholic institution has that as its ethos. There are therefore certain medical procedures that it doesn't perform based on its rights to conscientiously object. And this is an underhand backdoor way to override institutional conscientious objection because the government knows that if they were to go after that directly, there would be a community outcry because that is a strong component of our democracy and it's something that we've fought for for many years, going back to, you know, military conscription and, and other forms where we've decided that we want to protect the rights of individuals and institutions to be able to conscientiously object. One of the procedures that Calvary doesn't offer is what it terms elective abortion. How much of this decision is about that term elective abortion? I think that is what this decision is about. It's about ideology. So the government has said this is only about efficiency, nothing to see here. This is about subsuming Calvary into the one network. But what we know, anyone who's been following this knows, is that the ACT government has been waging a campaign against Calvary for some time. And it's not that it doesn't provide abortions because actually Canberra Hospital also doesn't provide elective abortion. There's no substantive difference between the two hospitals on that basis, but Calvary won't provide abortion. And they've also indicated that they won't provide euthanasia should the ACT government introduce that legislation, which they've signalled they will. And the AMA president of the ACT actually said this is a really good thing because it means healthcare won't be bound by ideology. But Andrew, as you know, um, and as I'm sure your listeners are aware, what they're really doing is replacing one ideology with another, and that's an ideology that abortion and euthanasia are healthcare. There was a report, Joanna, just a couple of months ago or a month ago uh, that did cite the case of one patient at Calvary Hospital, a woman who had suffered an incomplete miscarriage. She said she was denied dilation and curatage, which I think is a procedure to remove certain tissue. 
from the uterus after a miscarriage, that seems to be part of the justification for the government's decision to take over Calvary. I'm really glad you raised that, Andrew, because this is where we can actually see the ideological drive take place. Because what happened, the ACT government had a parliamentary inquiry and that report that was released a month ago has Calvi very much in its sights. And they mentioned this example of this woman who apparently turned up and wasn't able to get a D and C, which is the shorthand for dilation and curatage. Calvary Hospital has said very clearly once the report was published that this did not happen. They dispute that this situation ever occurred because they do perform a DNC. And so just to let your listeners know, a DNC is an abortion, but it can also be the treatment for a miscarriage. The difference being that with a miscarriage, the fetus has already died. And so there's no intentional ending of human life, which is what Calvary is opposed to. So they say that in miscarriage situations, they regularly perform DNCs and they would never have turned this away. But if you look at that report, and I've done a YouTube video on this, Andrew, the important thing listeners need to know is that parliamentary committee report had Calvary in its sights. And in the specific section that they devote to Calvary, and note there's no section on Canberra Hospital, even though they don't provide elective abortion, they only go after Calvary. And they spend quite a few paragraphs going through this alleged example of this woman who was turned away. Calvary was not given a right of reply. The recommendation was that, therefore, the ACT government should make Calvary perform abortions. There is another question here, though, Joanna, about not just Calvary, but other faith-based institutions won't provide certain medical services. <clears throat> Don't they have the obligation then to at least refer a patient on to a medical provider that will? Because that also seems to be a bone of contention in this case. So I think the fundamental point we need to recognise is that Australia is a pluralist democracy and we've had a long tradition of accepting that different institutions, whether they're faith-based or have other different perspectives, that we're going to tolerate that diversity and include that within the Australian Federation and we've recognised that. The point that you make about referral is an interesting one because it brings up the debate about when does someone become complicit in an act? we've always understood that the act of referral starts the process of abortion and we've we've accepted that. But in recent years, starting in Victoria, there's been a push to force doctors who have a conscientious objection to abortion to refer for that procedure. Listeners might be interested to know that with a colleague, I did quite a bit of research into this and published a journal article in the Cambridge Law Journal of Religion, looking at whether medical referral for abortion starts the act what we can see is that if a person believes that abortion or euthanasia ends the life of an innocent human being, then they don't want to be the person that signs the form that starts that process off. And equally, they certainly don't want to be the person that actually performs that procedure itself. And the problem with the decision to take over Calvary is that it sets a terrifying precedent that we may see the end of faith-based institutions in Australia on the basis that those institutions have a different set of beliefs to those that are in power. Professor Joanna Howe of Adelaide University Law School. You can also read an analysis by Joanna at the ABC Religion and Ethics online portal. So what do Australians really think about religious liberty, especially the hiring practices of faith-based schools and hospitals and welfare groups? The Centre for Independent Studies commissioned a YouGov poll of 2,200 people. It got some interesting results. Peter Curti led the project. 
In the very broadest terms, this YouGov poll shows that Australians are pretty evenly divided when it comes to freedom of speech and to issues around religious freedom. Almost for every Australian who has a concern that the protections are not adequate or that free speech protections need to be enhanced, there is another Australian who thinks that things are okay as they are. Yes, I notice uh, 46% of Australians generally thought the protections were about right. One thing that did intrigue me, Peter, was that more Catholics thought that we had got the balance right than Protestants and members of other religions. Uh, what does that reveal? It was an interesting finding, and the the numbers are quite close. I think it was about 45% for Protestants and 54% for Catholics. So not a huge divergence, but nonetheless, more Catholics were satisfied with protections for religious freedom. Perhaps that's partly because Catholics feel more secure and more deeply embedded in Australian society through the presence of schools and faith-based organisations such as hospitals, and it gives them a greater, as it were, social or cultural confidence. But it was an interesting finding. Now here's where the rubber hits the road because you mentioned schools and this is where we do get to the public policy implications of these survey results. What do Australians think about the rights of schools, religious schools, to discriminate in favour of co-religionists when it comes to hiring? Our finding around this was interesting and it should be remembered that about 34% of uh, Australian children are in independent schools, in non-government schools, and that of those non-government schools, the vast majority are faith-based. So a substantial proportion of Australian students are in schools which are faith-based and which and presumably for which the parents think it's an important feature of their children's education. So the parents believe putting their children into a school with a strong faith ethos is important. How does that play out though when it comes to attitudes to hiring staff? We did find that in our polling just over a third of respondents felt that that it was important for faith-based schools to be able to discriminate when it comes to employing staff, whereas 57% opposed this view, which we thought was interesting. And the number of don't knows was quite small. So the opinion around this is quite strong, and it would indicate that most of the respondents, most Australians, are not in favour of faith-based schools being able to discriminate when it comes to employing staff. The other side of that coin, as it were, is that if a faith-based school is not able to appoint staff who are sympathetic to the ethos of the school, gradually the ethos of that school will change. I did notice, though, in the research, Peter, that there does seem to be a large body of opinion that says even if schools can't discriminate when it comes to hiring people of the same religion, people who live out the religious ethos, there is a sympathy for the idea that such staff do need to observe the religious ethos though and if they don't they're subject to dismissal. This is a very difficult thing to prescribe in terms of precise policy or certainly in terms of law I don't think it's possible at all. A school will want to ensure that staff at appoints for whatever role will be supportive of what the school is about and they would not want somebody to be appointed who would undermine what the school stands for. But in terms of what it means to support the ethos of a school, well I think that's a very interesting question. Do you have to assent in doctrinal terms to every tenet of the faith or do you simply have to be sympathetic to what the values of the school are or the 
values propounded by that religious tradition are. Australians seem to think that doctrinal assent, requiring doctrinal assent, is going too far. How is this implemented, though, in government policy, in law? Because, as you know, Peter, we've now been going at this issue for three or four years, trying to determine whether there should be a specific national religious freedom law or laws to protect religious liberty. What are the public policy implications of this? You're right, this does have some history and of course the issue came to the fore in the debate about marriage equality, about same-sex marriage. And the Morrison government had two draft exposure bills proposing religious discrimination legislation. Neither of those bills succeeded. My own view is that although the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, has expressed a commitment to attend to these issues, this is not a priority for the Albanese government. And I think to an extent the issue has gone off the boil. Uh, There are people who are still concerned about it and who say we do need protections. Our finding, our research seems to indicate that this is actually not a matter of law and policy even, so much as, as it were, a cultural acceptance of the fact that we live in a very diverse society where different people believe different things and we need to accept the fact that people will have different points of view. I don't see how a law can offer that sort of protection. I don't see how a law can ensure that people think or act in a certain sort of way when it comes to religious belief. I think it needs to be a broader acceptance of diversity in our society. The the, the polling conducted for us by YouGov indicates that Australians are not unsympathetic, as it were, to that point of view, and are generally sympathetic and supportive of their neighbours who may see the world differently and think about the world differently. But like all Australians, we don't want views that we don't agree with forced down our throats. You do say the figures indicate that this issue has eased a little bit as a political priority. It's not something that the Labour government can afford to ignore. Why is that? we segmented the sample along a number of different lines and one of those lines was party affiliation. Green supporters on the whole tended to be at one end of the scale as it were. Coalition supporters and non-aligned voters were more concerned about issues of freedom of speech, about protections of religious freedom, and Labour voters were sort of equivocal about this. Where a Labour government needs to be careful is that if they drift too far towards the Greens' position, for example, they will lose the non-aligned voters and the so-called swing voters and may find that, in fact, it's harder to attract their attention. So Labour will have to think about how it positions itself on this issue. Does it try to capture some coalition support or some non-aligned support that tends towards the coalition, or will it go towards a more radical Greens position? Look, just finally and more broadly, your survey was not just about attitudes to religious freedom. It was about Australians' attitudes to free speech generally. Are we a country of um, free speech libertarians? I mean, what does the data show, Peter? What the survey shows is that we are pretty evenly divided on this. We found that 44% of those surveyed thought that there should be some legal restrictions, whereas 47% thought the law should never impose restrictions on freedom of speech. Peter Curti of the Centre for Independent Studies. And you're with me, Andrew West, on air and at the ABC Listen app. Jewish-Israeli Rami El-Hanan and Palestinian Bassam Aramin both lost innocent daughters to violence.
either from Palestinian bombers or Israeli police. But in their grief, they've become close friends, even brothers. They're trying to bring peace to the Holy Land and end the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian West Bank. Their story is captured in a documentary called The Narrow Bridge. It has its premiere in Australia this week. Rami and Basam are also in Australia with the group Plus 61J. I caught them before they left Jerusalem and we began with Basam's story. Unfortunately, it was a very black day on the 16th of January 2007. I lost my 10 years old daughter, Abir, to an Israeli border police in front of her school from a distance of 20 meters, and two days later, she passed away in Hadassah Hospital where she born. It was a very normal day. There is no clashes, no wars. Unfortunately, this is how we lose our lives, by chance. Yes, how did your daughter come to be shot by an Israeli army officer? Uh, she was in her school the 9.30 in the morning after they finished their exams. It was a patrol for the border police, as usual. And it was a very quiet place. Almost at 9.30, it was uh, shot in her head from the back. She fell down and that's it. It's unbelievable, but this is what happened. Rami, you also lost your beloved daughter, Smeida. What were the circumstances in which she died? It was the 4th of September, 1997, 25 years ago. It was the first day of uh, school. She went down the mall to uh, buy some books for the new year. And uh, three uh, Palestinian suicide bombers blew themselves up in Ben Yehuda Street in the center of Jerusalem. They killed five people that day, including three little girls, including my daughter, Smadar. She was 14 years old. You were both, understandably, absolutely consumed by grief. Any parent, any person, I hope, will recognise that. But what about anger? Were you also consumed with anger? I'll start with you, Rami. Of course you feel uh, angry. You are about to burst out of anger and it's only natural i mean most people feel anger but then um, after a while you think what good will anger do to me will it if I, if I kill anyone will it bring her back if i will cause pain to someone will it ease the pain it's a process takes time but you need to find uh, ways in order to use this energy of the anger in a positive way. Basam, did you feel anger and rage? Anger, of course. We must feel anger. We must be anger because we are human beings. And I agree with Rami exactly. This anger, we use it as a motivation to spread this message of this useless killing. We are losing our lives for nothing, just to control one another. And it should be stop this this situation so anger is very necessary to use it in a positive way it means this is the motivation to uh, wake up in the morning and start to uh, spread this message of peace and reconciliation and justice each of you have been combatants in a way in this terrible conflict that has racked israel and palestine uh, what were your roles rami what was your role as a combatant i was in a 
tank unit in the Israeli Armored Corps. I was first sergeant major, and I was fixing tanks. And Bassam, you also took up arms in this conflict. How? In fact, I spent seven years in the Israeli jails because I was a big fighter when I was 13 years old. 13? You were a fighter at 13? Yes, of course. We start very early. I don't know if I consider myself a fighter or if I am really a fighter. If you throw stones as kids, if you raise the Palestinian flag, even without knowing what's the effect of this flag, and find yourself in a jail for seven years if you are a fighter. So this is the difference in my case. But because I spent seven years in jail, I consider to be a fighter or a warrior. In fact, I am not. I was a kid, then I find myself as a fighter or a warrior. And this is not a normal situation because most of the Palestinians are fighters or warriors, even if they are only Palestinians in this situation, which is not. What happened to you, Bassam, by the way, when you were in jail for seven years? Because you were obviously extremely angry about the plight of your people, about the Israeli occupation of uh, the West Bank and Gaza. But something happened to you in the jail. It, It didn't make you less angry, but it did give you a different perspective. What was it? Absolutely. Briefly, I watched a movie about the Holocaust in jail, and I don't know anything about this Holocaust. It's the opposite. I hear that it's a big lie. We never know anything about it. We never study anything about it. But after I watching this movie, in spite, I want to enjoy to see this big Hitler that I don't know from where, killing the Jews. Then I find myself crying. It's sympathy with those innocent people. And I want to know more about this event, if it's really happened or it's just, uh, you know, propaganda. After so many years, before 11 years, I make my master's degree about the Holocaust in Bradford University in the UK. Then after that, I start to visit death camps in Germany. Because I believe that if you know your enemy, you can defeat him. If you only hate him, you will kill yourself. So, in fact, I want to know more about my enemy as a tool. Then you find yourself in a different place. Then you understand that if you know more, you act much better. If you don't know, I believe you are a victim to yourself, to your narrative, to your history, whatever. Rami, you also had a quite pivotal moment in your life when you heard that Bassam's daughter had been killed by the Israeli army. What happened to you? I knew uh, Bassam two years before, in 2005. My son, Elik, and Bassam were among the founders of uh, this uh, unique organization of war criminals and ex-terrorists, which is called Combatants for Peace. And me and my wife knew it was standing by the cradle of this uh, young movement, and uh, we became very, very close. The fact is that Bassam fell in love with me, and I fell in love with him. And the two families got together very, very close. We came to their house. They came to our house. And then on the 16th of January 2007, I got a telephone call saying that Abir was shot at the back of her head, and we drove to the hospital, and we sat two days by her bed until she passed away. And for me, it was like losing my daughter for the second time. It was uh, unbearable. It was 
so very difficult. And then I asked Bassam, what is going to be now? And Bassam said to me, God is testing us. And I carry it with me ever since. Both of your stories of grief are very profound, but what makes it more than a case of two individual men, two fathers united in the grief at the loss of their daughters? Because that is a very moving human tale, but there's something bigger at play here. What is it? What are you trying to convince people of uh, working now for over a decade together? Basam. It's very simple. It's to say that there is no nothing more important in life than kids and sons, our lives. And what we are doing is to survive, is to live. We are born to live and not to die. It's very simple. Always I said that we are killing each other for our beloved Jerusalem, for each one of us, but we meet each other under the ground of Jerusalem. And I'm not sure if Jerusalem know who we are. Our lives, our sons, our families is more important than any holy land. But we need to live in free, in peace, in dignity, human rights. Not one control occupy the other. Rami, there's a hard politics here, though, isn't there, in Israel? I think you've spoken about the shift to the hardline ethno-nationalist right, in a way, in Israel. How do you hope your story of as you say, brotherly love, could maybe overcome some of these hardening feelings inside Israel? I do what I do, uh, hoping that people will understand that there is another way, that the price of this way that we are walking in is too high. It's unbearable. The pain is unbearable. And we show and we offer an alternative. We are not come from above. We are not politicians. We are not academics. We come from the people. We are the people. And we tell a simple story which people can relate to and acknowledge and sympathize and understand that it's not written anywhere that we must go on killing each other. For what? That we need to share this land one way or the other instead of sharing the graveyards under it. Bassam, do other Palestinians get angry with you about this relationship that you and Rami have forged? We are swimming against the current. It's very difficult for the Palestinians. And I am, as Rami said, from here. We live under the same condition, the same occupation. But as I said, it's a, it's not a personal issue. We are fighting together. It's a relationship of partnership against our common enemy, against the oppression and the occupation and the violence which take off the lives of our daughters and sons. This is exactly what the Israelis want, and this is exactly what the Palestinians want. Even the people who don't agree with me, and I totally respect them and I understand them, they respect me. Rami, do you get pushback from Israelis? (laughs) I always say the worst already happened. Sometimes it can be very difficult, especially under this uh, current government and in this social climate. And Bassam is right. We are swimming against the current. Nobody promised us a rose garden. It's my duty and my mission to speak up and tell people the truth. And if they don't like it, they cannot like it. I mean, what can I do? It's been terrific to speak with you. A real honor. 
Rami El-Hanan and Bassam Aramin. They're both people who've suffered enormous grief and yet they've come together to try to build people-to-people contacts in Israel and Palestine. Rami, Bassam, thank you very much for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you. Thank you very much. And their trip to Australia and the documentary screenings are organised by Plus61J. And we'll put a link to details at our homepage. And that ends today's show. You can follow us at the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Hong Jang and to Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.